I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jonathan Reisman, is a doctor of internal medicine and pediatrics who recently published his first book, The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. With the excitement of an explorer, the book recounts his hard-won medical knowledge with the flair of a poet, the attention to detail of a journalist, the adroitness of a skilled craftsman, and the wisdom to notice and appreciate the patterns that the human body shares with the rest of the natural world. He has practiced medicine in the most extreme latitudes, both north and south, as well as extreme altitudes in Nepal. He has worked in Kolkata's slums and the Oglala Sioux in South Dakota, and heads a nonprofit to improve healthcare and education in India. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, and the Washington Post. So Dr. Reisman, Jonathan, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk first about the organization of the book, which really seems like a collection of essays, if I can put it that way, uh, each focusing on a particular organ or bodily fluid. And uh, some of this might sound a little disgusting to people, but somehow you, you turn the disgusting like an alchemist into the fascinating. So how did you arrive on this format? In a way, it, it was based on a few different things. You know, one was I sort of uh, was making fun of the way medical textbooks are organized. You know, we sort of break the body down into systems, into parts, and even further, each part is broken down further and further into cells and extracellular tissue, et cetera. So, you know, I guess that's how humans understand things by taking them apart, by understanding the parts and by understanding how those parts are assembled into the whole and how they work together to comprise that whole. So the same goes for the body um, as for, you know, kind of anything else we try to understand in the world. I was also in a way copying some of my favorite books, uh, especially by nature writers, especially uh, Barry Lopez and Terry Tempest Williams and some others who some of my favorite books that I read as a teenager that kind of opened my eyes to the natural world were sort of organized in a similar way. Uh, for instance, Terry Tempest Williams book Refuge about the Great Salt Lake. You know, each each chapter is a, a species of bird and each chapter she under, learns about that bird, interacts with that bird, see how it how it lives and along the lake and sort of extrapolates and thinks deeply about the connections perhaps between that bird's life and her own life, kind of drawing unexpected connections between this one species to the larger ecosystem. And so I kind of wanted to try to do that same thing, uh, kind of take a nature writer's perspective, but on the human body and instead of some geography I was exploring. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I, I thought of Henry David Thoreau when I read your book. And just this, this really close attention to detail and a kind of reverence uh, for what you were talking about. And uh, as I mentioned uh, a little bit before we started the interview, I'm a prescribing psychologist. So I've been in introduced to, in a very cursory way, to all the systems and all the medical knowledge. And we had to learn all the content of a nurse practitioner program, but in, in 25 weekends. And it was really cramming. But it did leave me with uh, a kind of a rudimentary uh, literacy for medical knowledge. So when I read your book, it, it, most of it was pretty familiar, but yet it was so enjoyable to read because of that sense of reverence for what you were trying to understand and, and, and the process too. You get a, we're kind of uh, a witness to your process and through the book of what it was like to be a medical student. 
you know, particularly a beginning medical student, your first introduction to dissecting a cadaver and what that meant, all the different experiences you had in the ER. It reminds me also of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show, Doc Martin. I've heard of it, haven't, haven't seen it. It's a British uh, comedy where he's almost like a superhero where he, he knows exactly what to do in all these emergency situations. Unlike Doc Martin, I don't think you're lacking the social skills that he lacks in order to make the show funny. But there's a sense of kind of amazement by everyone around him about what he's able to do in very dire circumstances with a, any particular patient. And of course, that doesn't just come out of nothing. You had to, you know, hard-won uh, knowledge. It was definitely a long road. As you said, you know, I, I went from having just the general knowledge of the human body and health and disease that anyone who's, you know, never had any particular medical training, not knowing much about what's happening inside my own body or the bodies of other people. And then, you know, step by step over the course of a decade and more, came to understand all these things. And in the book, I try to take the reader along with me on that kind of journey of discovery and fascination, I, I found it really just very um, eye-opening and fascinating the entire way from the first day of med school when we started dissecting our cadaver to today. And I still learn things often. You know, we, we often say that um, doctors are lifelong learners, and that is absolutely true. You, especially working in an ER, you think you've seen it all, but you are continuously surprised by what, uh, what walks in the door. And you mentioned Hen Henry David Thoreau. I just wanted to mention he was also a huge inspiration for me. He didn't quite organize any of his essays or books in, in precisely that sort of, uh, you know, broken down into the species, but he definitely has that nature writer's approach where there's a, a love and, a you know, an a appreciation for the beauty, the complexity, but also the interconnectedness between whatever he's looking at, you know, a fox's footprints and relating it to some aspect of history or mythology or other aspects of life that you wouldn't expect. And that's what I try to do in the book. Right. So there's a kind of a paradox. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Western medicine is quite reductionistic in a way. And, and yet you're also taking any particular observation and connecting it and connecting it and connecting it, you know, to your own life, to uh, nature, to um, humanity, <laughs> you know, you, you name it, to philosophical musings. So it's a kind of an interesting paradox. Is that I do get the sense that you're a thoroughgoing materialist, you know, that uh, what, what's real is what's physical. And I don't think you believe in a kind of separate spiritual realm, for instance. And yet there's a kind of spiritual quality in the broadest sense of uh, spiritual as, as really appreciating the deepest aspects of, of life and, and what it's like to be alive. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think, you know, you can... I, appreciate the beauty and the incredibly intelligent, you know, for lack of a better word, design of the human body and the natural world without seeing a, a human-like creator behind it. But, um, you know, I do think, as I mentioned in the book, for instance, I think love, for instance, for another person, you know, it, it kind of is on one level sort of a trick of our reproductive drive, our reproductive system. You know, we love because we have this innate drive to reproduce and make more of ourselves. But I don't feel that that diminishes the feeling of love or the beauty of it. And the same goes for the rest of life, our lives, and the other organisms' lives on Earth. You know, we're a small speck in the middle of the universe that probably no one else cares about. But I, I don't see that as reducing kind of the importance or the beauty of life in any way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky stuff. Definitely so tricky. Kind of th to balance that, it's a kind of a tightrope in a way. 
and of course, you know, we have these biological drives that sometimes, uh, because of social development, can really uh, diverge from the original purpose. And that's probably not all that predictable. So you talk about love as being coming from the reproductive drive. I mean, there's also love of not just one's family, but love of friends and love of, of music, love of whatever. I mean, it just uh, can expand and expand and expand. Right. Music is a great example where it's not clear that there's any survival benefit, but obviously it's for almost all people. It's one of the most important aspects of life and most enjoyable aspects of life, even though, you know, perhaps there's some social cohesion there. It contributes to, um, you know, kind of share a way of passing on a shared mythology in some cultures, but um, clearly it's, it's important in life. All right. Well, this is sort of a little bit of an aside from the main uh, focus here, but what I've read recently is that the musical aspect of language may actually have been primary, not the denotative. So, of course, you see it in, in birds and all kinds of animals, and, and the the expressive aspects of of, uh, of language is really in the in the music more more than in the words. So, the intonation and prosody of speech, and so the mu music as a separate medium may be derived from that. Interesting. The denotative language came came later. I could see that. I mean, music is important in almost all cultures. So um, even if it's not changing our bodies or, you know, enhancing our ability to survive, there's clearly something, something important there. So you start your book talking about the throat. Um, not sure why you chose, you know, which uh, systems or not systems, actually, you don't go, you don't have chapter headings of systems, you have specific body parts or body fluids. And you start with the throat, and I was really curious if it was always true for for mammals that they that they have this epiglottis, and the same throat is both doing the breathing and and the eating, and it turns out that llamas have have it separate. Is that right? They are called oblig obligate nasal breathers. There's absolutely no connection, no co no communication between the trachea and, and the esophagus, so they can in fact drink and breathe at the same time. <laughs> so that's interesting. I thought you'd, you'd appreciate that. I didn't know that. Someone had asked me, are there any animals where the design is better, where the risk of choking is, is not quite there? I first thought of whales because, you know, the blowholes is kind of on the back of the head, far away from the, the mouth. But it turns out, no, they do come very, uh, the food tube and the air tube come right next to each other. And they actually have a, a different kind of organ that scientists hadn't seen before to uh, compensate and keep uh, food and drink out of the out of the airway. But I'll have to look into llamas. So a whale can actually breathe through its mouth if it needs to? Well, I think that it does breathe through the blowhole exclusively, as I understand it. And the mouth is only for um, taking in seawater or, or, you know, eating, depending on the kind of uh, whale. But the, the two tubes, even though their entrances are very far away, you know, blowhole on the back of the head, they do come right next to each other and kind of uh, line up just as in the human throat. Yeah, what, what's funny in the book, though, is that you start out by um, dissing <laughs> the design. You know, I mean, how could it have been made this way? It's, you know, the, the risk of choking is too high. Almost everybody chokes at some time or other, and some people die if there's no one around to give them the Heimlich maneuver. So you, you're kind of, uh, you know, it's not that you're talking to God, but if you worry, say, hey, God, how could you, how could you design it this way? Or in, in your case, how could nature have designed it this way? I mean, it seems so crazy. You know, we swallow kind of all day long, whether it's during eating consciously or even subconsciously throughout the day. 
And every single time in our lives that we swallow, whatever food, drink, saliva we're swallowing comes within millimeters of going in the windpipe and killing us uh, or causing other problems. And as a doctor, you end up seeing a lot of those complications. And for me, it made me wonder about this design where, um, you know, one slip up one time laughing while you're eating or trying to talk while you're eating and choking and dying or sometimes just getting an aspiration pneumonia. So it is, it does make you wonder when you see these complications of the, of the body over and over, especially when most of the body is designed so brilliantly to, it seems like to favor survival, uh, perfectly designed, you know, to avoid disease, avoid senseless death, but the throat makes, makes you wonder. So you haven't found any kind of uh, evolutionary reason why it is that way? Well, I guess the only thing I came up with was that based on how we develop in the womb, it seems like it could have it couldn't have been any other way. You know, we begin as a single tube, a microscopic little um, kind of uh, round, flat disc in the womb, and we roll sort of like a burrito into a tube, and that's how we begin. So we have one, you know, we have one entrance to the tube at the front of the body, and one exit at the other end of the tube at the body's backside. The front end splits from one tube into, you know, multiple it splits into the air, uh, the windpipe, which goes down to the lungs, splits into the esophagus, which brings food and drink down to the stomach, you know, develops these other outpouchings of uh, sinuses and the middle ear. But really, it's that single tube that it all comes from. And so I guess, you know, the ultimate uh, design of the body, as we get more and more complicated, we're kind of just a, a more ornamented tube as we become adults. But uh, because of that original design, perhaps it couldn't have been any other way. Except for llamas. Except <laughs> <Maybe>. for llamas. <laughs> yeah, so just a little um, regional edit here. Uh, if we're talking about burritos around here, burritos are often tucked in on the uh, on the on one side. So maybe more like a taco. Oh, boy. <laughs> a wrap? Well, the tacos perhaps, aren't fully wrapped. So tacos are open at the top. So it's really hard to find a perfect metaphor. Well, I, I want to give us a, a sense of your writing. So if, with your permission, I'd like to quote uh, from your book, when you're talking about the circulatory system and talking about it being like a watershed in Kamchatka, which is, I think, in Siberia, uh, the human body is like an apartment building with each of its trillions of cells as individual apartments needing a steady supply of fresh potable water delivered under pressure, as well as a drainage system used for wastewater that flows by gravity alone. And the pressure must be high enough to spray strongly through every faucet and shower head in each apartment. So it's a wonderful use of metaphor, you know, for how the the, uh, the blood needs to get everywhere. And uh, this is quite an apartment building with what uh, trillions of cells, <laughs> trillions of apartments, you know, e each one with tinier and tinier rooms, you know, to kind of milk the metaphor for all it's worth. So I, I think you really give a, a, a nice appreciation for how it works in a sense, you know, giving a kind of visual metaphor that way. Right. I try, that's sort of something I try to do throughout the book is to um, use metaphor to kind of explain how things work sort of as I understood it, as I was learning about it myself. Right. I don't know if you've read uh, How We Die by Sherwin Newland. I have not. He, he's, he was really, I think, the first physician to write about the process of dying from both the medical, physical medical point of view and also from the experiential. He really weaves together the two really beautifully. It's a hard book to read. I actually couldn't finish it at first because it was so uh, horrifying because uh, I'm not a physician, so I'm not as exposed as you are. 
but then I finally did finish reading it. And, and he's um, a Jewish atheist, which um, I think, uh, I don't know if, how many listeners realize there is such a thing. I don't think you can be a Christian atheist, but you can be a Jewish atheist because it's more than just religion. It's also a peoplehood. And you get a sense that even though he's like you, he's a hard driving materialist, there is a kind of spiritual sense of it, a kind of uh, really a deep appreciation for life and for human experience. And he talks about so many diseases as stemming from a blockage of blood supply, of circulation, whether it's cancer, uh, the cancer cells kind of stealing more and more of the blood supply, almost any, any uh, so many diseases, not almost any, but so many diseases have to do with circulatory problems. Uh, right, heart attacks and strokes. Heart attacks, brain uh, strokes, heart disease. Uh, vascular dementia and he goes he goes through many of these things his book is organized by diseases right understanding how people die is is or what happens in the minutes moments before death has always been sort of fascinating and once you start uh training to be a doctor you know you're there for those moments often so you you sort of see sort of what exactly happens you know the kind of cascade of events that ultimately lead to the heart stopping which is sort of the ultimate moment of death, death in most in most cases. Um, but yeah, blockages in the flow of blood is a big one. Um, you know, just as medical science has improved beginning in the mid 1800s, kind of realizing that disease is not caused by the imbalance of these sort of spirit-like humors flowing through the body, but rather to discrete problems, uh, often of blood flow. Um, you know, when pathologists first started figuring that out, I think, we discovered sort of what causes most people to die. And we're still sort of discovering the details of those conditions. Right. So your first confrontation with death, I mean, up front, up close, was that with the dissection of your cadaver? And of course, the cadavers are preserved in formaldehyde or something like it. And it's probably doesn't feel completely like a, like a body in a way. Or I mean, it's so different from a living body because of that. My first introduction on on the first very first day of med school, they you know led us into the anatomy lab and sort of kind of pushed us in and said, "Okay, here's your scalpel. There's a dead human body. Now cut it apart and learn absolutely everything about it." It's true. I mean, in some ways, it was pretty similar to living tissue, but there were obviously there were definitely differences. Um, you know, the the feel of the tissues were a little bit different. Um, the body was drained of blood and then, you know, had its blood supply replaced with this formaldehyde or this formaldehyde like preservative. Um, so it was, you know, it was designed to, uh, not rot for about four to five months as we slowly dissected it over the course of that semester. And, uh, you know, things did start to dry out and smell a little by the end, but certainly, um, you know, it, it worked pretty well. I liked how sort of med medical school started with the end of the story, the end of the story of human life. Uh, before kind of backing up all the way to the beginning and going back to embryology, how we form in the womb. Uh, it's kind of the beginning of the story. So returning now to, to the experience of being confronted with with a with a corpse, I got the sense from your book that you were, were just totally fascinated. I, I didn't get the sense of any kind of horror. Uh, and I imagine you're just not really prone to, to squeamishness in general. I could picture you as when you were a little boy, maybe you were the one who was uh, playing with insects, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, had a kind of fascination for nature. But uh, is that true? Or is there some 
deep part of you that did get a little bit uh, squeamish. I mean, see, most of us, I think, when first confronted by, the, by a dead body, whether it's a cadaver or a recently deceased relative, I mean, there's, there's a kind of wave of, of uh, amazement and horror and recognition of one's own mortality, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, 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 I never had any uh, problem with, with the cadaver. I guess I've never been a squeamish person, so I think that certainly helped. I also was really fascinated from the very beginning that day, uh, even though we kind of only dissected um, kind of into the superficial muscles of the back, the cadaver that I shared with three other medical students was laying face down on the gurney in this anatomy lab. And there was about 20 or 30 um, other cadavers there as well in this big fluorescent lit room. And though, though we only got into the muscles of the back, I was really just fascinated by learning kind of how the muscles are connected to the arms and to the spine and how they help us move. Um, I found it very enlightening, sort of a, a look behind the curtain of, of how my own body worked and how everyone else's body worked, everyone I would ever meet or a patients I would treat. So I, I think that fascination sort of perhaps overrode any squeamishness that might have been there. And I think overall, the class, everyone sort of was fine. Maybe medical school selects for people who know they're going to have to encounter sort of uh, gross or, you know, unpleasant things like dead bodies and such. So perhaps we're already sort of self-selected for people who would tolerate it. I did ha I did hear about some people having a few nightmares in the beginning, but I feel like as far as I know, everyone got used to it very quickly. And that was that was an in instructive lesson for me too, just showing that humans can kind of get used to just about anything, whether it's dead bodies, horrible smells, war, whatever's going on in life, people seem to be able to compensate and get, get used to it. Well, I mean, most people, I mean, some people get traumatized. Right. And never recover fully. So that that's also true. But, you know, I think with, in, in your situation, there's probably a certain level of excitement because you're finally getting to see what you've been learning in the flesh, so to speak. Definitely. I think people, I, I think there's definitely an excitement and a fascination there. And, you know, you, you knew it was coming for some amount of time from the day you got into medical school. So I think everyone's sort of ready and eager. Um, maybe they don't love it as much as I did, but they certainly are ready for it in, to some extent. Right. And then there's almost an historical excitement because uh, in the past, before there were such things as dissecting cadavers, uh, anatomists had to rely on um, war victims or grave exhumations. I think Leonardo da Vinci, if I'm not mistaken, exhumed graves in order to study the anatomy for in order to have more accurate artistic depictions. And that was common up until the 20th century um, for medical students to sort of be grave robbers as well, which is pretty disturbing. But, you know, we're today we're sort of blessed, um, depending on which medical school you go to with a, a supply of, of cadavers. Um, though I know some schools, I believe, have even switched from sort of a actual cadaver to sort of a more virtual um, cadaver lab with sort of computer simulations. I'm glad I got to dissect the real thing, um, though I'm, perhaps the virtual might be just as good in terms of uh, the ultimate education on the human body. I'm not sure, but I'm glad I got to, to see that. And then part of your reaction to dissecting a cadaver saying, oh, I want to I be a cadaver. <laughs> you know? Right. I decided before the end of that very first day, I decided I want uh, my own carcass uh, to be dissected by a group of nervous medical students in the same exact way. I'm still sticking to that uh, to this day. Yeah. So there, there's a kind of comfort, not just with um, 
dead bodies, but comfort with your imagining your own dead body. I mean, that, that's really quite amazing. I, I think in medicine, we are faced with death so often, you know, from that first day uh, meeting our cadaver in anatomy lab to just working in the medical field, you end up seeing a lot of death, knowing a lot of people who you knew before death and are now dead, uh, people with terminal diseases, etc. So I, I feel like for me, I can't help but think about my own death and the death of people around me, not in a sort of morbid and continuous repetitive way, but just, you know, you, you think about it often, how would I feel in that situation? What would I do if I had a similar situation? Um, and I think, you know, some research shows that, for instance, when it comes to end of life care, doctors do more than uh, non-healthcare professionals tend to want to forego more heroic measures at the end of life, tend to be more insistent about not dying in hospitals, not dying on ventilators and ICUs, et cetera, because, because we've seen so many people die that way and, and see sort of the downside of trying to be kept alive with heroic measures. Well, that, that's the paradox, I think, of being a doctor is, you know, there's a certain level of pressure and fear of liability to try to keep the person alive, even when it's pretty hopeless. And yet knowing that this is incredibly uncomfortable and, and creating a terrible indignity on the, on the patient and, and trauma for the family, I guess the legal incentives are there to, to do it. And yet all the while knowing that I wouldn't want to have this done to me. I mean, it's, it's really kind of a strange thing about the system, I think. It is strange. And I think a lot of the time I spent in ICUs as a resident, for a lot of our patients who were being kept alive, a lot of it is doctors and residents trying to convince family members to kind of the family members of the patient to sort of let us withdraw care. There are a lot of times where doctors like me feel forced to almost uh, enact these indignities on people who you know are going to die. And we would rather not. Uh, but that does happen a lot. But but then again, I feel like medical science is so advanced that we can keep people alive. And that makes for very hard decisions. Like a lot of times I've had patients come in, uh, you know, in into the ER with with huge devastating strokes or brain bleeds or other other things where the prognosis seems grim and they're on life support on a ventilator, but stable. You know, then you often end up going to the family and sort of asking them, what do you want us to do? Should we keep them on life support or should we pull the plug? Which is almost um, just this unimaginably absurd question to pose to people in this, you know, already horrific situation. And now we're giving them this godlike power to, should we let your relative die? I, I guess, in a way, medical science and medical treatments, you know, are we have so much power to keep the body alive that it presents these very difficult uh, situations and dilemmas, not only for us, but for families who have no experience dealing with the you know end of life uh, from that perspective. And that can be very difficult, of course. Yeah, it's really an argument for f trying to face these questions much earlier. I, I would think the families that have ever thought about it in advance do much better than ones that are suddenly confronted with the, with the situation. Uh, so some doctors will ask their patients, you know, do you have a living will? which is kind of an oxymoron. It's not a live, it's, it's a will for what to do after you're not living or when you're about to stop living. Unfortunately, I think the, the way the financial incentives are, there's not a lot of time for doctors to talk actually with their patients about such, such things. But if, if they did, more people would probably get the, the, these documents in line. Right. It is crucial to kind of have those discussions beforehand. And I have seen even just in the single decade of my medical career, some, you know, a lot more people have talked about it. You know, there's been a lot of 
media and um, discussion about kind of end of life care. And I do think there's much more awareness these days about those questions and recognition from the general public about what they would want and wouldn't want. So there's some improvement, but I agree that there's still a lot of uh, room to improve further. Let's back up a little bit from talking about death to talking about things that lead to death, uh, like wounds. And you pay a lot of attention in your book about the boundary between the inside and the outside. And you also, I think, from the title of the book on, really I think prepare the reader to expect and, and, and anticipate uh, the, the wondrous innards of the body. You know, the everyday life is really on the outside, the, the skin and the, maybe the eyes, uh, but not, not the inside, which is, you know, what most people I think find either disgusting or scary. But you write about wounds uh, this way, and this is a, another quote from your book. Every laceration, every skin break is a view into the body. For physicians of ancient Rome, wounded gladiators were their best opportunity to study the body's internal anatomy since autopsies were prohibited. The deeper and more gruesome the wounds, the more educational. For me, peering into wounds feels like walking past an urban construction site where digging has revealed the underground layers of a city normally hidden from view by its intact skin of asphalt. I often pause to enjoy such brief but captivating glimpses of a street's hidden pipes and wiring coursing through earthen flesh like blood vessels and tendons deep in a laceration. But knowing the body's layers is important for assessing lacerations, as, as is knowing a city's subterranean layout for urban planners digging down through a street to fix infrastructure. So again, a wonderful metaphor. Just, just in case you don't get it, you know, you can just, you know, just imagine the, this building. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the level of complexity in the human body is so much greater, but yet it's, it gives some of the basic idea, the kind of the skeleton of the idea. And in and, and your book, you, you spend a lot of time also to, uh, with, in loving detail about your learning how to uh, tan, how to skin and tan the hide of, of, an, of a deer or other animals. Uh, and, and you have a lot of references to the animal world in that sort of way. Uh, and I just love your description of this uh, repairing the face of a woman who, in a drunkard state, had fallen face first into a broken crock pot, creating incredible lacerations to her face. And as you're doing the suturing, you're aware that your attention to the layers of skin and the way they'll hold, the sutures will hold them, is directly based on your experience with peeling back and uh, tanning this hide <laughs> and knowing what the layers feel like. It's really, really fascinating. I mean, I don't think most doctors learn it that way. <laughs> no, I think, you know, uh, brain, uh, actually the, the specific method of tanning that I learned was, is called brain tanning. And, uh, that was a hobby I picked up years before medical school. And I, you know, I had a lot of hobbies and interests coming into medical school and many of them end up being, being in the book and, you know, kind of, as I went through medical school, I thought about a lot of those and drew those connections. And I do think that my interest in tanning animal hides kind of gave me a unique perspective that most other doctors probably don't have on on the skin itself. And in, in many other ways, I think that, that my weird interests uh, from before medical school helped me sort of create these unique perspectives that I tried to uh, share with the reader in my book. Yeah, and, and a real hands-on perspective. I mean, it wasn't just uh, reading about it or even just viewing it. You were interacting. Uh, you describe how driving on the highway, you, you saw a carcass from you know, roadkill, 
and you immediately stopped your car and <laughs> started skinning the animal. You, we dra you dragged it deeper into the forest first so that you wouldn't alarm drivers. <laughs> right. Well, for anyone who's a amateur skin tanner like I am, you know, roadkill is the prize. Um, but, uh, you know, I always liked uh, being able to turn, you know, roadkill is such a senseless death of an animal that it felt sort of a, a even more wonderful thing to, to turn its skin which would otherwise just rot there at the roadside over the next few months, you know, into something beautiful. And, and that's a pleasure to see and to touch with your own hands. Um, but animal bodies in particular, you know, I, I got interested in sort of uh, both wilderness survival and prehistoric crafts. That was a, a very big interest of mine before medical school, everything from tanning hides to making stone tools to weaving baskets out of parts of plants. But, um, you know, the animal bodies were a huge source of just about everything that humans used in the ancient world from clothing coming from animal skins to tools coming from their bones and antlers and horns um, and you know everything from hoofs to to string made from the intestines you know all of this gives you perspective on these body parts that i then went on to learn from the perspective of a doctor in terms of health and disease and so knowing you know ancient people knew incredible amounts about the animals bodies that they used as food and other uh, materials for their lives. And, and indirectly, I think, probably knew a lot more than we give them credit for about how their own bodies work. You know, when you spend your life butchering other animals to eat, I think you, you end up learning a lot about how their bodies work, um, even if it's never written down or passed on, and indirectly about how uh, human bodies work as well. Um, and so I think that perspective really uh, was a was kind of at the forefront of, of my mind throughout my medical training. So I, I would understand that they would be very familiar with anatomy, but getting from anatomy to physiology might've been tricky, like knowing that the, what the brain is for. Cause I think in ancient times, the brain was thought to be a cooling, like a radiator in a car <laughs> rather than a seat of, of the intellect. I do think that, um, you know, I, I think for instance, I wonder if perhaps on occasion, well, let's say besides the brain, for instance, the cardiovascular system, I, I'm sure ancient peoples at times uh, butchered not completely dead um, animals, you know, perhaps and actually saw hearts beating and pushing blood. Even just seeing how the kidneys are connected to the bladder and connected to the urethra, and that's where urine comes from, tells you something. I guess I, I imagine they knew more than we give them credit for. But, um, you know, the brain too, I guess a lot of even what Western medicine learned about it was through injuries. You know, there's a famous case of Phineas Gage, who got a tamping iron shoved through his frontal lobe and his personality changed, you know, things like that. I'm not sure how much of the ancient world had such specific injuries focused on parts of the brain that could tell them how it works. But, but I do wonder if, you know, those sorts of things uh, kind of gave them a lot of insight as it did in more recent centuries. So get, getting back to your attention to, uh, to animals, uh, another way that you've kind of channeled your fascination is through gastronomy you have a fascination for eating <laughs> the things that you're trying to learn about. I mean, I guess we talk about digesting information, but you literally do that. Correct. Yes, I think that and that was another perspective, you know, uh, that I brought to to medical school. You know, I I enjoyed sort of the, the doctor's perspective on body parts, but also these other perspectives that sort of came came to me and I kind of liked that more well-rounded perspective. For instance, um, when I was in anatomy lab, one of the professors really enjoyed pointing out which muscles that we were studying in our cadavers were correlating to 
you know, well-known cuts of meat, you know, the, the filet mignon or the tenderloin is the psoas major muscle and various parts of the back of the thigh are the top round and bottom round and eye of round. And, and that, that sort of just a, a few mentions like that in the anatomy lab really got me thinking. And in my usual curious adventurous way, you know, led me to look further into that by visiting a slaughterhouse and sort of starting to read all about butchering and taking that on as kind of a new hobby in addition to all my other hobbies that predated medical school. I learned a lot about the body itself, you know, the, the same knowledge that goes into understanding how orthopedic injuries can affect certain ligaments and tendons and muscles. You know, that same knowledge is has been known by butchers forever in, in, in cutting apart bodies to uh, put them into presentable cuts of meat. And so I sort of liked the overlap there and sort of explored that and have continued to explore it to this day. And I'm still learning more about that. Yeah. So you might say that you were kind of a proud and yet sensitive carnivore, uh, an unabashed carnivore. I mean, you seem to really enjoy different kinds of meat and even learning to like different kinds of meat, like as in chopped liver, for instance. Have you gotten any pushback from, from vegans uh, from your book? I have. I have. And even, you know, I wrote an article in the New York Times in 2014 about it, this, that same trip to the slaughterhouse and did get some angry mail about just how, especially kosher slaughter, how that tends to sometimes be not as quick as, as other uh, forms of slaughter. Although the, the cattle that I witnessed being slaughtered in that slaughterhouse die within seconds. So I have, and even more recently after my book came out, I think that there was quite a bit of pushback on social media, especially one of the things I like to say, and I do believe it is true, is that, you know, I like to eat meat, but I also do not try to hide from the truth of meat, you know, where it comes from, how it functioned in animals before it ends up on your plate and internal organs. You know, I, I want to know all the details about how that organ served the animal in life and how that and anatomy and physiology knowledge can go into cooking things better. And I think vegans also want to know all about where food comes from and want to know the dirty details of how it ends up on the plate. Sort of they just maybe perhaps end up wanting to not eat it as where for me it ends up sort of adding to the kind of process of eating and making it a more dynamic and interesting and complicated process. Yeah, so you try to be a, a conscious carnivore, it sounds like. Right. And, you know, people these days, I think people want to know more about where their food comes from. You know, usually that's interpreted as I want to know where the food was grown, under what conditions or how the animals were treated. Buying from your local farmer instead of the faceless mega grocery store. I think there, there is a lot of interest in sort of getting more connected to our food these days after a kind of a century of getting further and further from it. And so for me, that anatomy and physiology knowledge has helped kind of connect me more to my food and to understand where exactly it did come from. Right. I mean, I think it would help the world if people could eat, if they're going to continue eating meat, to eat it very consciously and, and not as often. Yes, I, so, I, mean, I totally an, agree. There's an ecological uh, price to be paid for having so much meat consumption. Absolutely. And maybe I'm, you know, for in perhaps I'm creating new vegans by talking about uh, food in this way you know, kind of exposing exactly what we're eating. So there's a, an upside there, perhaps. And, and then, you know, in, in, in line with your unabashed kind of looking into the face of death, 
you talk about your own body and everyone's body is eventually going to become food also. And I guess you mean for microbes, although my understanding is that the Zoroastrians, they, they don't bury their bodies. They, they uh, leave them out for vultures to, to eat. And other people from other traditions find this absolutely revolting and horrifying, but that's their tra tradition and it has been for thousands of years. Correct. Yep. They put them on a platform um, and just leave them out there. And I do think, you know, in some cultures, they where where bodies are crema cremated, that might be the only way to uh, truly escape, you know, the food cycle. But otherwise, you know, if you're if you're not cremated, you will eventually be eaten by microbes or digested by molds and other fungi, or perhaps eaten by wild animals in certain cases. Let's talk now about fat. I'll just quote from your book again. Uh, this is that's just a, actually a quote of a quote. I don't remember who you were quoting, but you said the uh, you quoted the truth is that we're only beginning to unravel the mysteries of diet, fat, and disease. The medical community's ignorance, as well as our biases, means that the nutrition advice we give to patients change constantly. Each decade of the last half century found a new food to demonize, and soon after, the recommendations reversed themselves. The results said, oh, it's Kaplan. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not remembering which Kaplan. The results of Kaplan is that the public thinks we're idiots. So there's a very pithy way of, of kind of uh, admitting for the, for the medical profession at large that there are certain things we really don't know that much about and that we should maybe be a little bit more hesitant or more circumspect in our advice. Yes, I think hum humility is crucial. You know, medical history is littered with examples of medical dogma being thrown into the uh, garbage as new information or new studies come out. And I think that's truest and, uh, you know, in the area of nutrition, where, you know, if even from the time I've, I was a kid, I can remember kind of eggs being healthy, then unhealthy, healthy and unhealthy again in this dizzying uh, cycle. And, you know, now we're, I guess in the last few years, we're kind of realizing how all the low fat, uh, high carb recommendations of the last 50 years, perhaps uh, weren't all that helpful. Perhaps not the only cause, but you know, they sort of with those recommendations, we saw the the rise of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and a variety of diseases have become more common than ever. I don't think that's only because of doctors' nutritional advice, but um, but you know, and now we're saying, well, maybe fat uh, isn't so bad. Maybe sugar is the true enemy. I don't think we should kind of see anything as the enemy or as the, you know, the superfood. But um, it's very complicated as Dr. Kaplan, Dr. Lee Kaplan at MGH, probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about nutrition and obesity. And even he admits that we're sort of at the still at the very beginning of, of learning uh, how it works, because human bodies are all so different. Metabolism is so different. It's about a fifth of our entire genome kind of oversees how we metabolize food and how it becomes part of us and whether it's tends towards health or towards disease. I think we have a lot to learn. And even between two people in the same family, you know, who share almost all their genome, uh, you could find that, uh, that they're very different responses to food. I know a family where one person is overweight and can't lose weight no matter how hard they try. The sibling is skinny and can't gain weight no matter how hard they try. Um, and so these differences just make it a very, very complicated thing. And hopefully in the coming decades, we'll kind of start to really get some good evidence behind our, our recommendations. And, and do you think the public is, is familiar with what medical knowledge is robust and which medical knowledge is really tentative? No, I don't think they are at all. I think, 
even some doctors don't always, you know, me, I, I often don't actually know what the evidence base is behind some of the recommendations. Some I do know for sure. I know the study. I even can cite it and I've read it before, but a lot, you know, there's so much evidence out there and so many things that we do that a lot of it is sort of more based on tradition or more based on the fact that it seems to work in my head, you know, the, the, the way this drug works and the way it should help with this disease, that, that theoretical reasoning behind a treatment or a medication. I think that even if you you know, ask me to pre present the evidence behind most of the decisions I make on a daily basis, I would probably not be able to. And I think the public has been sort of fed uh, a diet, uh, pun intended, for, of, um, you know, nutritional science that always hasn't always been the highest quality, you know, small, small studies with sort of newsworthy or sexy clickbaity headlines, um, you know, that are that are promoted throughout the media um, kind of sphere, but don't often really help in terms of adding solid um, evidence to what we do recommend. And then from the doctor's point of view, there's so much to know, especially for a generalist like yourself, that it's really difficult to delve into all of the studies and, and all of the theory behind it. I mean, at, at some point, I would think there's a temptation to just accept the bottom line conclusion a lot of the time. Um, it, that's one of the real challenges I would think is, is to continue to delve in to, to pun intended you know, to, to the, the, uh, the evidence and the, whether it makes sense in terms of everything else, you know, how does it mesh? How does it integrate with what you already know? Yeah, that is a problem. I mean, just the volume of information you have to sort of know as a doctor is difficult, but then add on top of that, that it's often ch and rapidly changing, especially in this day and age where so much money is put towards medical research. It's a very difficult task to stay on top of the latest research, but it is incumbent on every physician to do that. Um, but it is a constant battle. Right. And, and then we talked earlier about um, the kind of carving up of the body, not in a butcher shop, but in terms of knowledge that, you know, medicine has become so specialized and every, every part of the body has a specialist and, you know, generalist tries to learn from all that, but this, it's just kind of an exponential growth in, in knowledge. And, and it's really hard for any one person to really, really, really deeply understand the whole thing. And that's a huge disadvantage, I would think, in certain circumstances. I mean, it, it, if the problem is really specific, if it's an ingrown toenail, then, you know, you can have a podiatrist, you know, cut it out. But if it's a more systemic disease or um, autoimmune problem, I mean, things that affect many different systems, uh, it's much more difficult. That's right. You know, I, I, um, as an ER doctor, I kind of ask for advice from experts all day, every day, you know, when, when there's a cardiac problem, I mean, obviously I can deal with a lot of them myself, but when a specialized, uh, intervention or procedure or surgery is needed, you know, I am constantly calling on surgeons and vascular surgeons and cardiologists and gastroenterologists to do these procedures that I haven't been trained to do. And that's sort of, uh, you know, that's how medicine works, obviously, as we get more abilities to intervene and more specialized technology and medications, you know, that specialization is crucial, but still the, you know, more than ever primary care doctors and, and generalists of that sort are, are crucial for sort of overseeing, you know, all these specialists. Sometimes uh, things can fall through the cracks uh, between different specialists. Sometimes it's sort of like blind people feeling different parts of the elephant um, who, who might not be able to step back and take in the larger picture. So generalists, in a way that specialization is crucial we want to advance medical know-how medical abilities but we we more than ever 
in parallel need those generalists to kind of step back and take in the big picture. And speaking of the big picture, I really appreciate it. And I think it's the last or maybe the second to last chapter, you talk about the other stuff that we've, the stuff in between the organs, I guess it's called interstitial tissue, what holds us all together. So I just want to read one last quote from your book. Uh, Another thing we learn in grade school is that cells are the body's basic building blocks and that we are constructed from them like buildings are made of bricks stacked upon one another. But in medical school, I finally learned about what lies in between our cells called the extracellular matrix or ECM. The fibrous and gelatinous substance fills all of the body's interstices surrounding cells like the body's packing peanuts enveloping fragile objects for shipping. If cells are bodies bricks, then this mucus-filled network running throughout the entire body is the mortar. We typically focused on the cells in each slide, but in between and surrounding them was the ECM. It appeared as loose strands of fiber, the rebar giving flesh its shape and tensile strength, with mucus providing the filler, like poured concrete providing structural support and resisting forces of compression. The fact that our bodies are made mostly of water is misleading. What we are actually made of is mucus. And I guess that's your mucus chapter, I think. Uh, but what, what really stood out for me was was the mucus that's that's the in-between stuff, which is really fascinating. It's totally disgusting from a uh, layman's point of view, and yet <laughs> that's what holds us together. Right. And mucus is actually, surprisingly, you know, for doctors and nurses who deal with bodily fluids all day, every day, mucus in particular holds a special place in that mo- it, it seems to be the one that still most grosses out even healthcare providers, you know, more than vomit, stool, blood. Uh, I've, I've heard many doctors and nurses say that mucus is they find to be the grossest thing. Now, is that because it's so teeming with, uh, with microbes? I mean, it's, I mean, part of its function is to clear bacteria from our bodies. And so it, it's, sort of, it's sort of like a mopping up ruch, uh, routine. So they, maybe it's more disease-laden than the other fluids? Well, still, I would say still not as my, teeming with microbes as stool. I think it might have, th- yeah, I think it has to do more with just the consistency, um, this sort of thick gelatinous uh, consistency and, you know, suctioning, let's say, some mucus out of a, a patient's trachea. The, the sound it makes, that sort of thick, bubbly sound uh, can really even after decades of being in healthcare, uh, can still grow and grow some people out, which is pretty impressive. Especially because you know it's how, how a lung is supposed to sound. <laughs> you know, it's... Right, nice and clear, no bubbling, uh, bubbling mucus. Yeah, you have a description of extracting a, a mucus glob from, from a patient and, and the satisfaction that you seem to get. I mean, it's probably a similar satisfaction, uh, but with less, somewhat less disgust of you know finally getting a piece of really hardened wax out of somebody's ear, inner ear, you know, that, you know that you know that it's going to be tremendous relief for the patient. Right. Very, very satisfying getting these gobs of gross things out of the human body <laughs> is um, satisfying for the patient and, and for the doctor too. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I can use the word relish, but you seem to, you seem to relish the, uh, if not the fluids, at least the ability to talk about them and write about them in this very matter of fact, almost gleeful way. <laughs> right. Well, I tried, you know, the, I, I do try to share my fascination with the human body and sort of try to, um, you know, even the gross things, anyone who's gone through medical training, you know, has been up to their elbows in every kind of bodily fluid that the human body has to offer. 
you know, we have these kind of quote unquote gross encounters with the body in every which way with its smells and sights and consistencies. And I think I'm, I'm trying to uh, kind of bring the reader along on that to sort of show them what, what we see and deal with, but just not to be like, oh, how gross this is, isn't it gross, but rather to, to see deeper into it, to see past the quote unquote grossness to, to, you know, to understand how it holds us together and how really important all these uh, things like mucus are uh, for keeping us healthy. Yeah, and I wonder if it prepared you for uh, for parenthood, you know, because the bodily fluids of one's newborn or child is somehow is not as gross, you know, because we we love the the body that has come out at the person that, of the body that it's coming out of. It's like, oh yeah, that's just normal. Well, I do think you know, newborn bodily fluids are objectively less gross than um, adult bodily fluids. Um, just like, but you know, I'm a both a pediatrician and an internist, so I see people of all ages and objectively the you know a baby's body is kind of pure and blemish free couldn't smell bad if it tried to as were the adults you know the adult body is uh, right but in in our culture uh, toilet training isn't until the two years old or, or later right and uh, you certainly have smellier poops by then true very true still seems less gross than adults but um well it's also helpful that it's much smaller <laughs> true but yes, medical training definitely prepared me for, for parenthood, especially being a pediatrician really um, prepared me quite a bit. Although I learned a ton about, you know, the day-to-day, hour-to-hour care of a child, as opposed to sort of the singular encounter in the exam room or in the ER, um, where you don't have to wonder about all these sort of things that, that end up you end up seeing and hearing and trying to figure out. Um, so there was a, a tremendous hole in my knowledge that a parenthood did help fill to some extent. Right. And and, and I, I wonder if the, if your parenthood also had an Im- a positive impact on how you deal with pediatric patients, that you suddenly had this in-depth uh, relationship you know, with your own kids. And I'm wondering in, in what way did it sort of have a feedback back to your medical profession? I definitely think that just in terms of kind of what is normal and what is not normal, I mean, that's a huge part of pediatrics is, you know, what is normal and what is not normal? What should be, what should a parent worry about? What should they not worry about? Um, And I knew that to some extent, you know, when a cough is just a cold and not a pneumonia needing antibiotics, but also just, you know, newborns breathe in funny ways sometimes uh, that I didn't always appreciate uh, as a pediatrician and just kind of the, the little details of life, um, I guess, I sort of understand what parents go through, especially what they worry about, uh, you know, when they bring a child to the ER, let's say, what they're concerned about, how best to reassure them that this is not serious, sometimes bringing up my own child, and maybe an experience I had with them, I find helps as well, uh, to sort of give the parent perspective. Um, But it's definitely helped with uh, understanding where parents are coming from, what their anxieties are, I already knew some of that, but having experienced it all myself uh, definitely helped me understand uh, a bit better. And do you find yourself then going home and being grateful that your own child is healthy? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's, you know, same with kind of me and my family being healthy, my parents, et cetera. Um, you know, seeing seeing the depths that people uh, go to, you know, when they end up in the ER, not only from medical disease, but from drug addiction, psychiatric disease, kind of childhood traumas and the lasting effects that they have on people. 
alcoholism, et cetera. Uh, you know, people just, there's a lot of difficulty out there in human life. It's not the as easy as it seemed when I was a child. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful for uh, the things that I have and not having to deal with those. You know, we all deal with some of those things to some extent, of course, in our families and in ourselves. But um, it, it makes you very grateful to see, you know, in the ER, you see humanity at its lowest point, kind of people at their scariest moment, their most painful moment, uh, getting the worst news of their life, the worst news of their relatives' lives, etc. So it kind of has to give you perspective on your own life and make you grateful. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, we're out of time. So uh, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Reisman, the doctor of internal medicine and pediatrics, who recently published his first book, The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. It's been really delightful to talk with you this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.